0: If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 1. Lord willing, this evening our intern, Chris, will continue a series looking at the doctrines of grace, what we believe about how God works, salvation in the world. But this morning we're continuing our series looking at this account of Jesus' earthly ministry written by a man named John Mark. Last week, we came to where Jesus called his first disciples to follow him. And then this week, we come to the first supernatural work of Jesus that Mark records. And we pick up at verse 21. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. to ask the lord to bless our time in this passage heavenly father thank you for your word we ask this morning that you would attend with us in the power of your spirit to make the preaching effectual for your glory for our comfort instruction and strengthening for repentance is necessary that in everything you would be glorified and our neighbors would receive the benefits of a people growing in the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John's gospel in chapter 2 tells us what was the very first display of Jesus' supernatural power or ability. And that took place just a little bit before what we read in this text, About 16 miles away, in an area called Cana, Jesus performed a miracle at a wedding where he turned water into wine. John tells us very clearly that was Jesus' first miracle that he performed. Mark doesn't begin at that point, and the same John tells us one reason why. John tells us in his gospel that were all the miracles that Jesus performed written down, they'd fill up all the books in the whole world. And so each of the gospel writers has to pick and choose being led by the Holy Spirit in order to emphasize different themes, different theological emphases, different lessons. And so together, these four gospels present different angles of view on the message of Jesus Christ, on the gospel of the kingdom. And that raises a question, why does Mark start here at an exorcism? And the context is important. We have been working through chapter 1 of this gospel, and so it's easy to separate out something that we heard a few weeks ago. But there's a context here in verse 14. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is declaring a kingdom of God, He's claiming some kind of power. He's saying that it's good news. And immediately Mark is going to illustrate the character and the power of the kingdom. And it comes in the form of being brought face to face with a power that exceeds in evil and strength any mere human being. And the purpose then, the Holy Spirit drives the one who's confronted with this story, us this morning, To recognize in Jesus a strength that overcomes all evil in the world. If Christ can take on even that which is invisible, which can hold a man like this in bondage, then he can free you from anything. And he can deliver this world from all that currently holds it in bondage. This helps us to understand what we are really praying when we pray, Thy kingdom come. We are praying for Christ to exert his power in the world by the Holy Spirit through the word, and through all the agencies that Christ controls. Now, as we consider this passage, we're going to examine it under three main headings. And I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Three main headings, starting with this. And we need to spend the bulk of our time on this. In the very first place, the Holy Spirit calls you in this passage to recognize something. To recognize something which is believed by many, if not most here, And yet often forgotten from our active memory. We don't live as if it's true. And then it is probably not believed by everyone here. That's just the nature of a group of this size living in the society that we do. In the first place, the Holy Spirit calls you through this passage to recognize there is an unseen realm. There is an unseen realm and it includes beings which are opposed to God, to humanity, and to you in particular. It's important that we remember this because if we don't, we will fall prey. There's a reason why the scripture says, be on your guard. Your adversary, the devil, stalks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That doesn't mean that he is always so obvious in how he works, of course. And in fact, until Jesus came into the synagogue, in all likelihood, this man was just sitting there. Even in the context of what was for them church at that time. Synagogue met weekly. It was the assembly of believers in that time. Even in the context of a church, you can have a person who is with an unclean spirit. And that's what we encounter in the first verse. A man with an unclean spirit. What is that even talking about here? In the first place, the word spirit here is to signify a distinct personality. A distinct entity. Person who has his own will, has his own thoughts, apparently his own feelings. So this is not simply Mark misdiagnosing a mental illness in the first century. Some have tried to say that. Well, that's the Gospels when they talk about demoniacs. These people simply didn't know what mental illness was, and so they thought it was that. In the first place, the Bible itself makes a distinction between these. For instance, Matthew 4, verse 24 says that they brought to Jesus all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, as well as demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed all of them. The Bible treats mental illness, physiological conditions as a separate category from spiritual oppression. They can overlap, but they are distinct. And on top of that, you look at the details of the text that Mark wishes us to notice here in verse 24. Here, the person cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. If you were to compare Mark 3.11, Mark 5.7, many other passages, when Jesus meets these demoniacs, they express a supernatural knowledge of who he is or other events going on in the world. Schizophrenia, as some people have tried to say, maybe this is just a schizophrenic, which is no justice to schizophrenic people. Schizophrenia does not empower somebody with hidden knowledge of spiritual realities. Clearly, Mark wants to draw attention to the fact that there's something bigger going on here with this spirit. On top of that, he describes it as unclean. In Mark's gospel, the word unclean is used as many times, talking about these spirits, as the term demon, which simply means a familiar spirit, a spirit that's near to someone in some way. That's what the word originally meant demon it didn't originally mean necessarily a bad spirit just a familiar spirit but unclean makes it clear it's bad because this is set within a jewish context where cleanness and uncleanness have ritual meaning that is it had to do with the way they practiced religion at the time whether or not you could approach god's holy place in the temple And so to call this an unclean spirit means that it is impure, it's evil, it is opposed to the presence of God and that which is good, and it has a polluting, a corrupting influence. This is an evil being. Now at this point, obviously, this is going to jar with the beliefs of many people in our society. Many people prefer to restrict their view of reality. They want to restrict their view of reality to only what can be known empirically. Children, that just means by scientific testing, whether you can feel it, see it, measure it. And so they want to restrict their belief, at least in anything that makes them uncomfortable, to the things that can be tested in that way. If you're going to measure reality merely by empiricism, by naturalism, If you're consistent, you have to forfeit all kinds of immaterial, intangible things that ordinarily people just take for granted. Think about what you have to give up if you're really going to function that way. The inalienability of human rights. Where did they come from? If they came from humans, humans can take them away. The social compact can be broken. It has been broken in many places throughout history. Governments that say there is no transcendent reality, no unseen, invisible realm from which ultimate truths come, well, the people ultimately acquiesce to the government to dictate for them what is reality. Human rights, as inalienable, are rooted in something unseen, a belief that there is a God who confers those rights, who determines what a person is. Similarly, take, for instance, The existence of human consciousness other than yourself. This is so innate that perhaps you've never even thought about this. How would you go about proving that anyone beside yourself actually has an internal consciousness? And not that it's an elaborate trick. They are like a robot, they are AI. Some years ago, a number of thinkers were asked what they believe in that they cannot prove. Daniel Gilbert, who's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, when he was asked this question, he went immediately for human consciousness. Hear briefly what he said. He says, we take each other's consciousness on faith, because we must. But after 2,000 years of worrying about this issue, no one has ever devised a definitive test of its existence. And then he goes on, and yet I haven't the slightest doubt that everyone I know has an inner life, a subjective experience, a sense of self that is very much like mine. The same goes for many other realities that aren't known empirically, but are known intuitively, or are known by their explanatory power. Maybe you say, well, how come I haven't experienced this? How come I haven't seen this? That's not incredibly compelling. appreciate that, but simply you haven't seen it. Others, probably even in this room, would say that they would make a claim that they have experienced some sense of the demonic at some point, simply because you have not doesn't prove anything. In fact, the fact that you don't encounter demoniacs on a regular basis, if anything, we would argue from our coherency, our belief system, only proves what we believe about the Bible, that God has said that he greatly restrains the power of the enemy. It may be helpful to know something. The consensus among Reformed theologians for centuries and centuries and centuries, the overwhelming consensus, has been that demonic possession was entirely or almost entirely exclusive to the period just before and after the coming of Christ. God permitted this as a demonstration and exposing of the evil of the evil one. On the other hand, it demonstrates who Christ is and his power. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there's not just a sea of demoniacs in the world. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that the influence isn't there. You may be aware of this. For decades, there were theorists who were saying there were such things as gravitational waves. But they didn't yet have the means to test and demonstrate this. The theory was there, but the empirical test wasn't there. It doesn't mean they weren't real, and then eventually there was a test. If your test is seeing a demon-possessed person. You may never be satisfied. How does the Christian believe this? There are multiple reasons to believe that there is an unseen realm. This sermon is not meant to exhaust what those reasons are. I could definitely make recommendations of resources if you're interested in that. But the first, and what ought to be at the end of the day, the last and most important reason for believing in this, isn't even related to the demonic. If somebody challenges you on this, you don't have to go out and prove it by saying, well, I experienced this, I heard someone felt that. We have a doctrine of Scripture. If we believe Scripture on all other points to be reliable, well, Scripture speaks clearly to this. And so I'm going to go with Scripture above my limited experience. If I have good reason, and we do, to believe Scripture, not simply because of a feeling in our heart, though the work of the Spirit is one of the reasons. But if we have good reason to believe Scripture, then we should believe this too. And Scripture definitely bears witness to this. Take, for instance, I don't ask you to turn there, but listen carefully. Ephesians 6.11. Put on the whole armor of God in order that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present spiritual darkness against the spiritual forces of evil that occupy heavenly places or unseen realms when we think of heavenly there it's not heavenly doesn't always mean good it means a higher order of being a way of being that's on another mode another kind of being so what are these cosmic powers again this one sermon is not meant to exhaust this but very basically Very basically, if there's one thing children should know, one thing above all, it's that they are creatures. They have not always existed. They are not of equal power with God balancing him out. They're creatures. And the Bible describes how at some point in time in history, many of these creatures fell and rebelled against God. In doing so, they turned away from him with a purpose to destroy and to deface anything that brings him glory from that point. Now, God is just, and he does not owe them a redemption arc, something we often don't think about and perhaps forget. God doesn't owe sinners anything. That's the nature of sin. And he didn't owe them a redemption arc, and from the point of their fall, they seem to set themselves about, I will make things as bad as I can for as long as I can. And there are people like this in the world who are animated by the same corrupt tendency. Think of an artist who is inferior. And instead of admiring art better than his or her own, they can think of nothing they want more than to deface and to degrade the art that they could never produce themselves. That is a demonic attitude. It's reflective of this, I will destroy what I can't do or have. And that seems to be what animates these creatures. Jude 6 says certain angels, quote, did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left or abandoned their proper dwelling. That's tantalizing. It doesn't tell us all that we may be interested in, and the Bible is not committed to telling you all that you want to know about. God, for our good, has limited our knowledge on many things. Think of what good parent would populate their child with all of the evils in the world. And these are Father-in-Heaven-grade mysteries at this stage of our development, apparently. It doesn't tell us all that we need to know. Something else that we should know is that there is a kind of hierarchy revealed in Scripture. It's there so that we would know it. But there's a kind of hierarchy. Some are higher than others. Jesus, in John chapter 12, identifies one as prince over all others. That one is called in the Bible sometimes the devil. The devil, literally the word means the enemy or the slanderer, one who blasphemes God. The blasphemer. When you hear devil, it's so easy to picture some ridiculous cartoon image, spade tail, red suit. But the word, when you hear it, you should think blasphemer. Put it in English if that helps you. The blasphemer, one who blasphemes God and his image. Sometimes called Satan, which means the accuser. One who lives to point out the sins of others so that they go down with him. Underneath him, there is a hierarchy of middle beings, it seems, who exert vast spiritual influence. Again, the scripture only hints at certain things, but it's clear enough. Daniel chapter 10 describes how the angel Gabriel came to the prophet Daniel. And Gabriel tells Daniel, I tried to come here sooner, but I was actually delayed because I was in some kind of conflict with the, quote, prince of Persia. And that suggests that there is not a, not that the demonic is geographically bound, because again, we're talking about spiritual beings. How do they relate to space and matter? We aren't sure. I'm not going to claim I know. But that there seems to be a, an assignment, a responsibility to exert corrupting influence over particular areas in the world. Similarly, Revelation 16 verses 13 and 14 describes three demonic beings, unclean spirits, it uses the same phrase, which are sent out and deceive kings in the world to turn and persecute the church. It says, these three unclean spirits, which are demonic spirits, performed signs and went abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. I don't believe that has happened yet. I believe that's yet future. But it speaks of the demonic turning the kingdoms of the world to a universal period of persecution. And then we have in this passage, Mark 1, what seems likely a lower order. One that only exerts influence over a particular person, it seems, at one time. And yet, even here, consider how powerful the weakest is. If the weakest is so strong that he can bind a person against their will, such that their whole personality is suppressed... How strong must be the strongest? We think of a disease as powerful when it takes away your mobility in some way or degrades your mind. But here this person is suppressed such that they're not the one speaking. This is the force, according to the Bible, that every person would be under if God were to allow this. This is not reflective of a particularly bad demon. It's not like some of the demons want to hang out and are good. This is the tendency when permitted to do so. In fact, they do even worse. You could read later in Mark uh, chapter 9 of a demon that repeatedly throws a child into a fire and into water to kill them. What would you think of a person doing that? Over and over again trying to put a child. You'd say, that person's insane, it's evil. But this is the character of an unseen realm that we have to grapple with as believers. It has tremendous explanatory power for evil in the world, though humans are capable of evil themselves. So you can't simply say, The devil made me do it. But it does have explanatory power. That's the first and the longest point here that we have to grapple with because it sets the stage for the second idea, which is much more straightforward. In this narrative, we are brought face to face with the fact that Christ has greater power. And you're in the first place as believers to rejoice in that. I imagine if we asked everybody here, there are some of you who have stories about having an older sibling who came to your defense. There was someone bigger than you on the block. And then you delighted in the fact that you had a sibling who would have your back and who was bigger than you. And the Lord calls you to look at Christ and to recognize he is stronger than all that opposes his kingdom. Had you been there that day, it would not have been obvious to you. And it's not obvious to all of us to this day when we think about who Jesus is, if we're unfamiliar with him. If you had been there that day, he looks like just some teacher. In fact, he's described in the Bible as very modest. The only passage in the whole Bible that tells us what Jesus looked like, other than maimed and deformed by crucifixion, physically scarred by that after the resurrection, the only passage that tells us what he looked like is Isaiah 53 verse 2, which I would add is represented in virtually none of the abominable images that people make to mislead us about what he looked like. A savior that's practically unapproachable in his beauty. Isaiah 53, verse 2, the New Living Translation says it very clearly. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Jesus is the quintessential anybody. And yet, the moment he opens his mouth, people perceive there's something different, there's power. I would challenge you, anyone who is not sufficiently acquainted with Jesus, do this, in this week perhaps. Just pick down and maybe pick Mark or maybe pick John. I have a preference for John in this respect. Just read through the Gospel of John in one sitting. It takes about an hour and a half. Many people have testified that's how they came to faith. There they encountered a Jesus who's unlike any other teacher in all of history. When he speaks, they note, Verse 22, they were astonished, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as scribes. The scribes were religious historians in a way. They stood out by saying, this is what others have said in the past about the scriptures. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He speaks as the divine source of truth. He speaks as though he has sovereignty over the Sabbath. He has sovereignty over resurrection. He has sovereignty over forgiveness. He has sovereignty over the demonic. They notice there is something different about him. And it'd be one thing to talk, but then you get a confirmation here from the demon himself. First, by despair in Jesus' presence. Have you come here to destroy us? It perceives something of Jesus that was not apparent to others. Many, many millions on that day will behold Christ in truth and their words will be identical. Have you come at last to destroy us? Because then they'll see who he actually was and believe. The demon, in this sense, is extorted to provide testimony concerning Christ. Second, he acknowledges his title, the Holy One of God, the one chosen by God for his good purpose. But then finally, notice how he submits to the command. There's no contest. Jesus' word is his deed. And that's the note of the gospel. Jesus' word is his deed. If he says, come out to this demon that nobody else could remove, it must come out. If he says, be raised, come forth from the tomb, Lazarus comes forth. The great struggle of the Christian life on a daily basis is not to know the will of God. In many, many things, the vast majority of things, we can know perfectly well in 30 minutes what the will of God is, if we'll go to the Word. The great struggle is to believe that Christ, in fact, has power. To believe that he will use the power. And here is a person who wasn't even looking for it. How much more does Christ hear the people who ask? There's no indication this man asked to be delivered, but Jesus shows tremendous compassion upon this person he doesn't need any rituals he doesn't need some special thing he simply speaks and Jesus demonstrates this as a sign of his power but also to certify his teaching and that's the last point that we have to come to in this it's not just a feat of strength I know that feats of strength are fun and they are engaging. You may have seen them at a fair. Maybe you've watched some on the internet just seeing some person show off incredible strength. There's something fun about that. Maybe something satisfying. You go, I can't believe that person can lift that enormous Scottish log and throw it over. But it doesn't do anything in the world, really. Jesus was demonstrating his power, but it's not simply to show I'm so strong. Verse 7 clues us in on the purpose, and this is our third and final point here. Reflect on the purpose of this miracle so that you don't miss it. Verse 7, see the effect that it had on the crowd. They were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They made the connection. It'd be one thing for Jesus to say, I have power over sin and evil. It's a different thing to cast it out easily. The point here is to certify the truthfulness of all that he is saying about the kingdom of God. And about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. The bad news of the kingdom is that there is an opposing kingdom. And that the whole world lies under that power. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Their world representing those who have not yet come into Christ's kingdom. Peter will say that we who have believed have been transferred out from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus was declaring to people who felt good about themselves, who felt like decent people, unless you repent and believe upon the God of the promises of the old covenant, the God who is unfolding now, what we come to call the new covenant, unless you believe on that God, you are under the power of the devil. So he says, well, I don't feel like I need an exorcism. I don't feel like I'm in bondage. Again, the enemy would do even more with you if he could. But hear what it says in 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. When it says makes a practice, it's not just that this has happened repeatedly, some sin, or else we are all in trouble. When it says makes a practice here, it's that a person can live without inward regret and hate towards sin as an offense against God and goodness. They may restrain themselves in many respects and look down on particular kinds of sin, but at the end of the day, there is one or other sins that they say, This one is mine. I would not let go of it. And the only reason I don't do it is because others stop me. The consequences in this life are too high, but they don't hate it as sin. 1 John 3 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. On that day, perhaps nobody was expecting there to be a person with an unclean spirit sitting in a synagogue. I would be foolish, and we would be foolish. If we doubted that this day there should be even one unconverted person here. And yet it's no less true. The the evidence is less dramatic. If there is anyone who does not look upon Christ and his kingdom as the good news. Who does not look upon Christ as the Lord. Who does not desire to be freed by him through his power. From the bondage you truly are in by sin. Try not sinning then you are not less, ultimately, under the bondage of the enemy than that man was. But the good news is that Jesus declares, I came to free, to make an end of all the works of the devil. And the promise of the gospel is, yes, overarchingly, God forgives and draws in those who look to him. But more particularly, Christ has come to defeat all that oppresses his righteous people. There is not a sin you wrestle with and there is not a person in the world and there is not any of these cosmic powers that exert force against the church to this day that will not be overcome. And the purpose of this miracle was to assure us of that. So by way of conclusion, I want to encourage you in just a few things. First place, beware your enemy. That doesn't mean give him more credit than he deserves. I'm not telling you fear that there's a demon under every rock But it means going to the scripture and learning how to do battle. Believing Jesus' teaching doesn't just mean believing the way of justification. It also means believing him in everything he says about how we fight. Whether through himself or the prophets or the apostles. So we have to learn how to fight. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 35 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I want to appeal to you, though we absolutely must as human beings engage the world in all of the common ways God ordained, by law, by engagement in institutions outside of the government, whether that be schools, whether that be you name it, we must understand in the kinds of issues that even we prayed about today, concerning abortion, concerning, oh, the list would be long. Fundamentally, we are not up against a legal problem. Fundamentally, you are up against a demonic problem and a sin problem. And the powers that be don't ultimately care whether anyone acknowledges them. Those powers ultimately care only that the image of God is degraded in the world and that people are damned. Your job as a Christian in law is not per se to legislate faith. You can't create faith in the heart. Nevertheless, we have to make a compelling case in the world that there is more at stake than simply what we see. So I encourage you, look to Christ and believe on him. Believe he is powerful enough. He has his reasons for allowing what he does. And in the case of a demonic possession, you could say, why did God allow this? Was he more sinful? Did he get involved in, you know, he drew an evil symbol on his floor and this happened to him and it's his fault? Or could it not be like with the man who was born blind? They asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it he who sinned or was it his parents? Jesus says, it was neither this man nor his parents, but it was that the glory of God might be revealed. Why does God allow things to be as they are sometimes in the world? It's to display the greater glory and the perseverance that he grants through his people. Let's ask him to help us in that even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which renews our minds and our hearts. We thank you for your spirit who works in us. We pray that you would put us on our guard, and yet yet not in such a way that we should be overly fearful. We thank you for the words of Jesus to Simon, that though the devil desired to sift him like wheat, yet, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. We ask, Father, that Christ's prayers for us would be answered by you. That his intercession would reach its conclusion. That in your time, we would stand in your kingdom. That we would be acknowledged as citizens of your kingdom in light. Until then, we pray that you would help us to wage our battle. We pray that you would help us to demonstrate the joy, the peace, the righteousness of the age to come to all who see us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.